still in the connection between the previous chapters. Uh, chapters 7 and 8, we saw, uh, we, we stepped back in time uh, to the first day of the first month of the second year since the people came out of Egypt. And so um, we saw the offerings that were brought for 12 consecutive days to consecrate the altar. And today, in that same month, the Lord will give a direction for the people on the 14th day to celebrate the Passover. And so this really is marking, in a sense, the one-year anniversary of the people coming out of the land of Egypt. It's a celebration of God's deliverance for them. uh, And it comes at the tail end of this uh, two weeks of offering and celebration and worship that they've already had. So Numbers chapter 9, together reading in verses 1 through 14. Before we read this word, let's join together in a word of prayer again. Gracious God and King, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we come before it, you would humble us to hear what you have to say to your people. We pray, Father, for wisdom to know and to understand your teaching, uh, to know especially your Son, and to believe in him, and by believing in him, to have life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover, and they kept the Passover. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, So the people of Israel did. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day, and those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body, or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord... According to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may add a blessing as we study it together today. What does it look like to be a welcoming church? Welcoming church probably the sort of thing that pastors and elders spend uh, more time than most 
members thinking about, but it's also the kind of thing that you can sense just as soon as you visit a church for the first time. You know within the first few minutes of walking into the service, normally within the first point of the sermon, whether the church is a place where you are invited or a place where you are unwelcome. I think because a welcoming church is more often something that we feel or we sense Uh, rather than something we can analyze, often we boil it down to those intangibles about a church, the way that we're greeted, uh, the the friendliness of the congregation. Whether anybody notices a visitor and turns uh, to say hello, the warmth of the congregation, we reduce it to that sometimes. Another way of making churches more welcoming or pursuing that is to settle all those small details that make church accessible. So we think a welcoming church is one with a really good website. Uh, Or or they have to have clear signage. They have to have colorful bulletins. They have to have a clean nursery. They have to have catchy music. They need special programs for the children during the service. We call that a welcoming church. Increasingly, in our secularized society, a welcoming church, well, that's code speak. That means a church that demands nothing in particular uh, from those who want to attend. So you know, there are some churches that never preach about sin. Some churches that if they do, only preach about the made-up sins that are easy to denounce. Sins like privilege, or intolerance, or climate care injustice, things like that. Some welcoming churches go out of their way to tell you that their members and their pastors hold to a wide range of theological beliefs, sometimes no beliefs at all. Welcoming churches are, as I read recently uh, on the website, very clean, well-maintained website, of an actual New England church, not a PCA church, welcoming churches are, quote, on a mission to make church relevant again. Now, you should know that the elders of Redeemer want Redeemer to be a welcoming church. We want our members to be warm and inviting. We uh, want our families to feel good about the nursery if they choose to use it. And I love our clean and well-maintained website. But there is far more to being a welcoming church than our sound system and our snack time. Being a welcoming church is, at its core, about extending the welcome of God to sinners who need fellowship. It's about inviting people into real fellowship with the Lord. And that means fellowship on His terms, not a false communion that we have created for ourselves. Remember your disappointment. The last time you bought something that you thought you wanted just because you believed the sales pitch. Well, the packaging was nice, and the reviews were glowing, and much to your surprise, it was far cheaper than you expected it should be. And then when you got it home and you opened it up, you found that you got exactly what you paid for, which is to say not much. In many churches... The emphasis on being a welcoming church is about packaging. It's a focus on lowering the price of entry. It's a matter of making church comfortable rather than declaring God glorious. Numbers chapter 9 is all about drawing near to God in worship. 
And as we look at this passage today, I want to help focus your attention on two things in this passage. The first is good order, and the second is God's welcome. Good order and God's welcome. Now, perhaps the first thing we need to get straight about worship is that worship is something that God has commanded. You see that very clearly in the opening verses of chapter 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. The people are still in the wilderness. They're approaching this one-year anniversary, their great deliverance from slavery, and to make sure that they do not neglect that wonderful celebration of God's salvation, the Lord gives them a reminder. Don't forget the Passover, he says. Do not let your hearts grow dull. Do not forget to give thanks to the Lord. Do not forget to gather in your families and use this as an opportunity to teach the faith to the next generation. Don't forget the Passover, the Lord is saying. And in that reminder, the language of commandment is very clear. Do you hear it? You shall keep it, says the Lord. In fact, you shall observe appointed times, all its statutes, all of its rules. The Lord gives good order to our worship. And he does it by giving worship as a commandment. And so when we think about what worship is, we need to know that it's, it's something that God gives us. The call to worship comes from Him. And the way that we worship comes from Him. And the purpose of our worship is something that He gets to define. And this is where we begin to have our first disagreements over Christian worship and what it ought to look like. That's because many people begin with the assumption or the understanding that worship really is something that comes from us. Worship, according to many people, uh, well, it's expressive and it is performative. I mean that in the best sense of those words, right? Many people would believe that, that worship is, the sum total of worship is an expression of our thanksgiving to God. It's the way that we give thanks to Him. It's our gift to the Lord, the way that we perform our praises. And as everybody knows about gifts, it is only the thought that counts. And so as long as your expression of worship is sincere, that's what matters. Away with all this, uh, this organization and good order and worship, this biblically mandated ways to come before the Lord. So long as you worship in a way that resonates with you, that's what matters. So it doesn't really make sense or matter much if you uh, prefer to worship by listening to sermons. That makes you a Presbyterian. Uh, or if you prefer to worship by lighting candles by dancing in the aisles, or any other thing. What matters is that you worship in a way that resonates with you. Along this line of thinking, we could think of worship as a love letter. There are, of course, some people who are more eloquent than others. Some have a command of the language. But in a love letter, it's not necessarily about your eloquence. That helps, of course. But, but a love letter is about bearing your soul to your beloved, isn't it? It's about sincerity. It's about the intimate connection of, of showing who you are and what you feel and how you, uh, how you love them. A love letter is expressive. Now, before things uh, get out of hand, before you hear me incorrectly, we need to know that sincerity in worship is very important. 
I don't want anybody going away saying, oh, that pastor says that all you have to do for worship is step through all the right external hoops. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus said either. You remember that conversation that he had with that Samaritan woman outside of the well, just beside it, and she tried to reduce proper worship to external forms, really to to where worship ought to happen. She said, you know, our father said we should worship here at Mount Gerizim. Your father say we should worship down there in Jerusalem. So which is it? Which one is right? Remember Jesus' response. He says, the father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth. He says there has to be uh, an alignment, an agreement in our worship between what's internal and what is external, between the form and the substance, between God's commandment and our commitment. So yes, worship is an expression of our devotion. Worship is a performance of our praise to the God who saves us and loves us eternally in His Son. But worship is more than something that we perform. Worship is also something that forms us. Worship is a tool that the Lord uses to shape us into the worshiping disciples that he wants us to be. This is the lesson that that Israel learned in the wilderness in connection to the Passover. God's word came to them at the close of this first year and, and before they began their long march to Canaan. That's going to happen about 50 days after the Lord gives this word And as the culmination of this experience at Mount Sinai, God is calling them back to the ceremony that reminds them where they have come from and where they are going. Verse 3, the Lord said, You shall keep the Passover according to all its statutes and all its rules. We're not going to rehearse all of the statutes and rules that you can find in Exodus, chapters 12 and 13, if you want to read them later. We won't rehearse all of those things, but you remember the general shape of it, right? Remember the sacrifice that had to be made? Remember the blood that had to be uh, poured out and then painted on the doorpost? You remember the meal that was eaten with the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and how they had to have uh, their stabs in their hands and their sandals on their feet as a sign that they were ready to go where the Lord was going to lead them. You also remember how God commanded them to use that ceremony to teach his truth to a new generation. Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. When in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you hear the spiritual formation that's happening among God's people in those words? The Lord was telling them, you must come back to this ceremony over and over. And when you do, you have to do it in the way that I'm telling you to do it, because when you do, it will teach you what you need to know about me. It will be a tool to teach your children what they need to know about me. By coming back to worship as the Lord has given it to his church, he's telling them you entrust, uh, you guard the good deposit of faith that's been entrusted to you. Excuse me. On the other hand, Consider the alternative. Consider what happened right there at the base of Mount Sinai, just barely two months after coming out of Egypt, when God's people decided to worship the Lord in a way that resonated with them. That's what the golden calf was, you understand? 
down there in Egypt, they had their idols. They had their graven images of silver and gold. They had their gods that looked like livestock and beasts of the field and creeping things of the earth. They had all of their festivals filled with drinking and carousing. And so when the people found themselves in the desert and leaderless, what did they do? They went back to what was familiar. They went back to what they knew. And isn't it amazing that the Passover was meant to remind them of the Lord who brought them out of slavery. Yet what did they say in Exodus chapter 32? Verse 4 tells us that Aaron received the gold from the hands of the people, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, Then he made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It was a complete reversal of what real biblical worship was supposed to be. And yet, culturally speaking, it was more like a lateral pass. Here's what we know. Here's what resonates. Here's what's familiar. Let's do that thing instead. It was exactly like what they saw in the rest of the unbelieving world. I wonder if we ever stop to consider why the sermons in so many churches sound more like a TED Talk than they sound like the Word of God. I wonder if we ever wonder why the singing in many churches sounds more like entertainment than it sounds like the voice of the people. I wonder if we ever stop to consider why the prayers in many churches have become shorter less specific, why they've been crammed somewhere into the, the end of the section of, of worship where nobody will notice them or, or mind them much. Do we ever wonder why in many churches there are multiple options for worship, often happening at the same time, and your option depends on your preferred music style or your age demographic, or maybe there's even an abbreviated service on Saturday in case you don't have time in your busy schedule on Sunday morning. It was the lesson that Israel learned in the wilderness of Sinai. Either God will use worship to form us according to his image, or we will form worship according to ours. I realize that in bringing these things up, just how much this makes me sound like a crotchety old Presbyterian. I understand that as it's coming out of my mouth. I know that you hear it, and I know that you're thinking that, but perhaps we need to consider whether we are too easily offended by the idea that God might take our worship more seriously than we do. That is why, in Reformed churches like ours, we hold to what we call the regulative principle of worship. In short, basic sense, it's a teaching that says that we should do in worship only what God commands us to do in worship. If there is no commandment, we do not do it. And so Paul writes to Timothy. He tells him to devote himself to the public reading of the word. He tells him to preach the word, to reprove, rebuke, rebuke and exhort. And so in our worship, we read and we preach the word of God. The Lord tells us that by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we should make our request be made known to God. And so in our worship, we pray together. And we take that praying pretty seriously. 
And on and on we could go. The, the Lord calls us to sing, and the Lord calls us to give, and the Lord calls us to gather at his table. And if you are curious, any of our elders would be just as happy uh, as you could ever imagine to sit down with you and walk through every step of our bulletin and explain to you, this is why we do what we do in worship. But it all comes back to the principle that we do in worship what God has commanded rather than what we have decided for ourselves. Now, of course, uh, merely saying that we believe in the regulative principle doesn't answer all of our questions about worship. Some of you have been around Presbyterians long enough to know that we can have some pretty hair-splitting discussions about what we ought to do when we gather between the call to worship and the benediction. And so we have our disagreements among ourselves. Should, should we sing only psalms or, or can we sing hymns as well? Which instrumentation should we use as we sing, if we use any? Can the Lord's Supper contain grape juice or does it have to have alcohol? And when we come before the service, who can lead the service? Who can read the scriptures? Who can offer the prayers? Among faithful churches and Bible-believing Christians, people come down on different sides of all of those debates, and this is not the sermon to open up any one of those in particular. But merely to say that affirming the regulative principle doesn't answer all of our questions about biblical worship, but it does give us somewhere to start. Right? It gives us the recognition that the right way to worship comes from God, not from us. It means acknowledging that God gives us worship as a commandment, because in our worship, God calls us to good order. Now, uh, that brings us to our second point. Because in well-ordered worship, God also extends his welcome. Our second point is God's welcome. Now, whenever we talk about the idea that God has specific standards for what worship ought to look like, there, well, there's a handful of reactions that you might get from folks. One reaction, honestly, uh, is that people find it refreshing. Uh, there are believers who have grown up in churches where the worship isn't so much unbiblical as it is just unimportant. Right, there are churches that are casual, and casual churches are okay. But there are churches that are so casual that worship seems like an afterthought. And it seems like there's no distinction between one portion of the service and another. It seems like there's no structure to the liturgy, that we're not being led upon some sort of drama that brings us to the Lord. And if you asked some of those churches why it is that they do what they do together, the, the answer is something like, well, you know, it's what we've done. It's what was here before us. We're just going to keep on doing that. And for some people who come out of that context, and they come into the idea uh, that worship is more than something we do to fill our time and feel good, uh, it can be life-changing. It can bring a new zeal into your entire Christian life. And if that is you, may your tribe increase, right? Because you are a part of the minority. That's one response that people have. They, they find it refreshing. More often, the response that comes from outside the church is to say that biblically ordered worship is closed-minded. It is needlessly strict. It is an unnecessary barrier to people who might come near. And so the view is that like Pharisees who strain out gnats and swallow camels, so are Presbyterians who bicker among themselves over whether a woman can lead the prayers or read the scriptures. We find it unnecessarily strict. 
That's one of the responses. So there are people who find it invigorating, others who find it ridiculous, and then there are some within the church who get anxious. People who get worried. People who fall into a, a sort of paralyzing restlessness over whether they've done everything in worship correctly or whether they've displeased the Lord by leaving out something important. I hope you understand the dilemma. There's some people who who want to draw near to the Lord in worship, but as soon as they find out that worship is a serious thing, it feels more like a burden than a blessing. There's some Christians with tender consciences. They approach the whole idea of biblical worship like that servant who received just one talent. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, the servant came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Let me give you an example uh, of what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. We read it today in our New Testament reading. Chapter 11, verse 27, Paul writes this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. There are some people in church, sometimes adults, sometimes young people. And they read that verse, or they hear me quote it or allude to it every time we come to the table, and to them it becomes a stumbling block. For them it sounds like a warning shot, a warning to keep their distance, threatening judgment if we dare to approach the table of the Lord without every last article of theology locked down, without every last doubt in our minds answered. And so rather than profess their sin and their need for Christ, rather than profess their faith and come to the table, they wait. And they consider. And they ponder. And they try to work out their worthiness for the table by their own efforts. Do you understand the dilemma I'm talking about? If you do, especially if you ever find yourself, wondering how worship can be a blessing if God has such high standards, Numbers chapter 9 ought to be a great encouragement to you. That's because the main point of this passage is really not what we call the regulative principle of worship. The main point of this passage is what one commentator called the irregular principle of worship. Verses 1 to 5 record this command. The people are in the wilderness. God calls them to worship. They come and they do. But the real focus is on the issue that shows up in verse 6. There are some people in the church among the, the nation who are ceremonially unclean. It wasn't their fault, most likely. Probably they were asked to help bury a, a recently dying uh, relative. Maybe somebody collapsed right in front of them. They were the only one there to rush and help. However it happened, they're unclean. And verse 7 says that these men came to Moses, and they said to him, we are unclean from touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? This is a serious problem. It's serious because on the one hand, God's law, Leviticus chapter 7, says... Anyone who eats of the sacrificial offerings given to the Lord while unclean must be cut off from his people. On the other hand, Exodus had commanded them to keep this feast as a perpetual reminder throughout their generations. They must come 
and offer the Passover sacrifice. And so how can these two be reconciled? They're commanded to uh, to the Passover, and yet they couldn't keep the Passover. It's a real problem, so much so that Moses didn't know what to do, but he knew where to find the answer. And so back to the Lord he went, and the Lord gave his answer. Now, it's in the Lord's answer that I think some crotchety old Presbyterians, like me, uh, might be surprised at the graciousness of God. Uh, Sadly, it is a symptom that you have probably seen because it goes along with our theological tradition. It's a symptom that some of us really love to take the most hard line or the least nuanced position on every theological debate that comes before the church. Sadly, there are some of us who are very much concerned with maintaining the holiness and the seriousness of God, even if it means overlooking some of his suffering people. Sadly, there are some of us who could far more easily handle keeping certain people away from the Lord for fear of contamination than we could wrap our minds around just how wide the Lord opens his doors to bring outsiders and unclean people into his fellowship. So I suppose that for those same some of us, If we were in Moses' shoes, we might have responded more quickly than Moses did. I said, I'm sorry, there's there's nothing that can be done. You're unclean, you, you can't come before the Lord. There's no fellowship for you. The Lord has spoken, and that's it. You're going to miss out, you're going to have to wait for next year, perhaps. But the Lord is not so limited. So in verses 9 through 12, he speaks to Moses. He says, tell them that I'm going to give them a do-over. Tell them that I'm going to give them a second chance Passover celebration. Verse 10, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. Do you see what he's doing? He's implementing his irregular principle of worship. He's extending mercy to an alternate opportunity for those who want to come to him and yet who are hindered. And for those who have a heart to worship, the Lord goes to meet them. He extends to them his compassion and the largesse of the God who crosses boundaries to claim his people. Now notice very clearly two important things about the answer that the Lord gives. The first is that the Lord expands his mercy beyond the immediate question. They came asking about themselves. The Lord speaks to them about their descendants. They came asking about uncleanness. The Lord spoke to them about people on a journey. It seems disconnected in our minds, but it most likely meant somebody who was out of the country, who was not among other believers and couldn't worship with other Israelites. There was no other faithful family where they were uh, able to go and celebrate the Passover. And then verse 14, the Lord reminds them, they must not have a double standard of compassion. Any sojourner who has joined themselves to the covenant people through Israel must be treated with the same graciousness and compassion that God showed to their brothers and sisters. So, first, the Lord expands his mercy beyond their questions. Second, the Lord upholds his holiness without compromising his compassion. He did say that they could keep the Passover differently, but he doesn't just mean that the Passover is a free-for-all. 
He doesn't say, you know, as long as you're sincere, you come and you do whatever you want. I, I don't really care much. In fact, he repeats in verses 11 and 12 some of the rules that they may not bend. You can see them there. You can't break any of its bones. You can't leave it over until uh, the next day. You have to have the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And he reminds them. And then verse 14, he says that his allowance for them, his graciousness, cannot become an excuse for laziness and apathy. There are providential reasons why the people were kept. But then there are people who say, you know, I just, yeah, it's not for me this year. Uh, I'm busy. I've got other things to do. And the, the Lord says, no, that person shall be cut off. And so the Lord says there's grace to be found in the Passover. He, he offers his people mercy and he upholds his holiness. It still leaves us with a question of how it applies to us. And here I think it's helpful again to think about how we approach the table of the Lord. Especially because uh, this is the New Testament parallel to this Old Testament sacrifice. For good reason. You know that the, pas uh, the festival of the Passover, excuse me, the festival of the Passover proclaimed to God's people in Israel the saving work that the Lord had done. The way that he delivered them from, uh, from slavery through the blood of a substitute. While they were in bondage, before they could find freedom from their, for themselves, the Lord intervened. And God came down to bring his people to himself. And so every year, throughout their generations, the keeping of the Passover meant to remind them of the fact that God is the God who helps those who can't help themselves. And now through different signs, and now with a greater clarity, that is exactly what the table of the Lord proclaims to the church. It's, it's not without reason that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. It's not without reason that 1 Corinthians chapter, 7, chapter 5, verse 7, Paul tells us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. It means that when God calls his church to the table of the Lord, he is calling his people to a better Passover. He's calling us to a new covenant proclamation and a remembrance that we should keep throughout the generations of the gospel. What we find at the table is a covenant proclaiming that through the death of Jesus Christ, those who were in bondage to sin have been set free. A proclamation that through Jesus' death, those who were unclean in their unrighteousness have been made pure. A proclamation that through Jesus' resurrection, those who were dead in their trespasses have been raised to new life. And those who are strangers and aliens to the covenant of promise have been brought near. Not because we were worthy. Not because we were clean. Not because we had it all together. But because our God is the God who helps the helpless. And if at the Passover in the wilderness God was more gracious than his people might have expected, how much more should we look to see God's graciousness at his table now? How much more should we expect to come to the Lord's table with boldness and hope? Not boldness in ourselves, not, not hope in what we've done, not hope in our expression of worship, not our outward performance, not convinced that we are strong enough and clean enough and pure enough to come. Rather, bold and hopeful, because we become convinced that we need the gracious welcome that only God can give us.
That's what we find at this table. We're going to come to it in just a moment. And I want you to know that this table calls us. We are commanded. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should come. And if we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the call is not to sit and ponder and wait forever. The call is to repent and to believe and to come. The Lord calls us to worship and he gives us a gracious welcome. The table that we're about to come to is for all those who don't deserve it and yet have trusted in Christ anyway. Let's pray together and come to his table. Well, gracious Lord our God, we thank you for your blessings to us in Christ Jesus. We confess that we do not uh, deserve them, and we confess that we're not worthy to receive them. But you shower them upon us in love in Jesus. Help us, Father, to come to you, trusting in him and believing in the word that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.